0: Okay, as we get started, uh, we have handouts in the back. If you had a chance to grab one, if you didn't grab one, is there anyone who needs a handout? Okay, Alan's going to grab some, if Amy doesn't beat him first. Okay, six-week series, A Christian Perspective on Marriage, Family, and Singleness, Please note the indefinite article at the start of the, the title there, a Christian perspective. So you take that in consideration. this is not the Christian perspective, this is a Christian perspective and there'll be some things that you'll probably want to think through maybe maybe wrestle with a little bit further, uh, least of all what we covered tonight. Um, I don't know yet, this is sort of still a work in progress, I don't know yet how these six weeks will break up in terms of uh, whether we'll have two weeks on marriage, two weeks on family, and two weeks on singleness. Um, Some of the stuff that we do in the two weeks, at least of marriage, um, obviously have uh, sort of a trickle-down effect to uh, how you then view or discuss things pertaining to family and singleness. Uh, so, depending on how various issues or topics are touched on, that may have an effect on um, where things go in the subsequent weeks. Um, that being said, the session that we have for tonight—if you can make it through tonight's discussion on marriage—that'll you'll be good. It'll be smooth sailing. All right, because this is, uh, yeah. This is, uh, we're looking at why marriage, what's the, what's the purpose in marriage, and Doug, I don't know, to me it sounds like it's a little fuzzy, the sound, I don't know if that's on my end. Could It's not my beard. We'll edit that out of the audio, yeah, I think that's better, okay. Uh, first things first, as, uh, as we get going here, let me give credit where credit is due. Um, one of the things that had a significant impact on um, on my view of actually some of the things that we're going to be talking about here is this book that I read a couple years ago. Uh, it's entitled, if you can't see the, the picture on the screen, uh, Marriage, Sex in the Service of God. The title is a little bit misleading. The book is not all about sex, all right? That's also not why I bought it. I bought it because I heard from a reputable source that it was a it was a very good book, and it was. It is. Um, I got a copy here. This is this is not a light read in the sense that you know if you want to pick it up and if you want to you know kind of have your heart stirred. What's that? Rated it's rated PG. Yes. Uh, still, you want to be careful. You don't want to necessarily read some of these sections with uh, with the little ones at night with family devotions or anything like that. Uh, this is more. Uh, it's by Christopher Ash. He's a uh, he's a Brit. Um, really well thought out, well researched book. Um, it's not a it's not a, a research resource per se. I say all that up front um, just to to say that most of what I give you tonight I I drew from this book. Um, so I don't I don't want you to think that. You know, this is me creating stuff. I want to give credit where credit is due. I would, I'm pretty sure that as we go through in uh, in the following weeks, there'll be other things that I draw from from this book. But the bulk of what we do tonight, actually, um, I picked up from this book. It was uh, for me anyway, sort of an eye-opening experience and something that I thought, um, or that I was eager to discuss in, a, in a, uh, a broader setting, which is one of the reasons why you get to be the guinea pigs tonight, okay? So, if you wanna come up and take a look at the book later, that's fine, uh, probably that book should be required reading for anyone who wants to go into pastoral ministry um, or if you're already in pastoral ministry, it it should be a must. But I have no ability to mandate that, so I just throw out my two cents and. Let the chips fall where they may. All right, session one, why marriage? Um, one of the things that happens often when we discuss the topic of marriage and even marriage from a Christian perspective is that you, uh, you need to be careful or you need to um, define up front what angle you're looking at. So typically... Uh, as we approach the the topic of marriage, and as we're looking at marriage from a Christian perspective, there are one of three questions that are typically raised um, that are answered, asked asked and answered, depending on what your objective is or what it is that you're trying to communicate. So the what, how, and why question related to to marriage. So, if you're asking the question, what is marriage?, essentially what you're after or the answer that you're going to give is going to be the definition. What, what is marriage? If someone asks you what marriage is, well, then you have to set about defining it. Marriage is the permanent union of one man and one woman, or marriage is a permanent relationship between any two humans, right? The, however you're going to define it, that's what you're after when, you're, when you ask the question, what is marriage? Closely connected to that, depending on your definition of marriage, will also come in your view of morality and ethics as it pertains to marriage. So, from uh, a Christian perspective, in light of the fact that we would define marriage as the heterosexual union, lifelong union, that's acknowledged publicly but maintained privately, we then would see anything outside of those bounds outside of a a faithful, committed, lifelong heterosexual union, we would see anything outside of that to be immoral or unethical. But again, all of that gets to definition. If you're asking the question, how, how does marriage work? Essentially, you're getting to the issues of uh, means or tools or resources or practical advice. So a lot of this will come out in uh, in some of the discussions or the um, whether it's a sermon or a seminar or something like that. How to have a a, a happy marriage or um, how to not just survive but thrive and you're, that, a how question, right? What we're after tonight is more the why question, and on that, the why question, why does marriage exist, gets to, ultimately, we're trying to dig down to what, is the, what the purpose of marriage is. Why is it there? Why was it created? What is its goal? What is its purpose? You see how each of those questions more or less kind of tackle a different element of marriage? what, how, and why, and why is what we're, what we're looking at tonight. All right, so everyone hear me. Here's my, here's my warning slash disclaimer for the night, okay? Marriage, if you're asking why does marriage exist, it's not for romance. It's not for self-fulfillment. If you can make it through tonight, we'll come back and we'll talk about romance and fulfillment and all that kind of good stuff next week. Okay, But for tonight, it's not for romance and it's not for fulfillment. Why does marriage exist? Here are three uh, common views that you have. Uh, One, marriage exists for relationship. You have, a lot of people would point to Genesis 2.18, where God, looking on Adam apart from Eve or without Eve, without the woman, says definitively. It's not good for man to be alone. And so, seizing on that statement, some would say, well, the reason that marriage exists, the reason why Eve was brought into existence to begin with was so that Adam could have a companion. It was not good for him to be by himself. It wasn't good for him to be in solitude. God made us as relational beings, therefore, Adam needed someone to satisfy or to meet that need, his relational need. That's one answer. Second answer for why does marriage exist, what its purpose is, procreation. You go back to the first chapter of Genesis, and you see God tell Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Well, in light of the way that God has created sex gender issues, so on and so forth, but sex in terms of sexual reproduction in particular, obviously Adam needs, in light of that framework or that structure that was created even within the animal kingdom, in order for that pattern to hold true when it comes to the human part of creation, Adam obviously needs a partner in order to be fruitful with. He needs someone else in order to be able to multiply, and so um, a lot of people would point to, uh, this is heavy in Catholic practical theology, by the way, that procreation is the uh, one of, if not the primary goods in marriage. And then three, some people would say that marriage exists or marriage exists for the purpose of public order. And they would point to verses like you could go to any number of verses. But, for example, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, where earlier in that chapter, Paul says, um, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you he goes on basically that you know how to possess uh, possess your own body, not live in lustful passion like the Gentiles do. And then he talks about not defrauding, that no man should transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, for the Lord is the avenger of these things. Transgressing and defrauding in this matter in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 is in the context of sexual morality. Couple that with Passages like Hebrews 13, where it says that the marriage bed should be kept undefiled. Uh, Proverbs 6, where the son is being warned by his father, not simply to um, keep away from the immoral woman uh, in in terms of the, um, you know, almost kind of a, a propositioning kind of woman, but stay away from a married woman because when you get caught or when it comes out, there are penalties and um, consequences to that, one of which is the fact that her husband is not likely to forgive. So, you take passages like that and you say, well, it's, it's just for the good of society, it's for the good of human flourishing in general that we have marriage, because you can't have men more or less going out there like they did in some cultures and just trying to amass as many women as possible because then you're going to have these guys fighting over, I don't know, a scarcity or an abundance of women, whatever the case might be, and it's going to lead to all kinds. So every man gets his, you know, gets his woman or gets his wife, and everybody's happy and everybody's good, and we can live peacefully and in harmony with one another, and we don't have to go about killing one another to get that woman or get another woman, Okay. Make sense? Okay. Now, the thing to notice here is that for each one of these, it's actually possible to find biblical support for this this thinking. There is something to be said for the fact that because of marriage, there is a unique relational component that exists between a man and a woman that is unlike any other type of relationship that people enter into. Having said that, that's not to say that unless you're married, you can't have a relationship with anyone else. There's all kinds of different forms of friendship and companionship that exist, but there is something to be said that that is provided for in marriage and that Scripture speaks positively of the relational good that comes from a healthy and thriving marriage. We'll talk a little bit next week about what, um, what an extended text like Song of Solomon does in terms of depicting for us um, not just the relational good, but the the end goal of uh, of marriage in terms of the um, the how else would you describe it the flirtatious, romantic, even sexually charged dynamic between a man and a woman. So, we don't want to deny the fact that there is something to be said for the fact that God has met relational needs in marriage. We don't want to deny the fact that there is the aspect of procreation that comes from marriage. In fact, that's the only realm or sphere in which God has approved of procreation taking place within the framework of a committed marriage relationship. And we don't want to deny the fact that on the whole, society, whether a Christian society or not, is far better off honoring and respecting the institution of marriage than if they didn't. Right? Even if you're going to be in a largely predominant secular society, on the whole, even if you're going to divorce the idea of marriage from anything that's, that's said in Scripture, or take from it any of the Christian un, uh, remove from it any Christian underpinning, we would still have to say that at least at some level, any society would be much better off having intact marriages than having just this licentious free-for-all. So in every one of these, it's not that we necessarily want to deny it and say that marriage doesn't meet these goals or doesn't drive us there. What we're going to look at tonight, though, is whether or not these, any one of these three is sort of the dominant or the overarching purpose of marriage, which one or what explanation answers for all of the components or the, all of the different aspects of marriage that we see. So... What is marriage for? Um, if you have your Bible with you, here's where you want to open up to Genesis. Real quick, especially, uh, Genesis 1. Especially if you're sent to the back, can the font... Does it need to be bigger next time? can see, okay. All right, we actually have some younger ones sitting towards the back, and that's probably not the people to ask. Anyone want to admit to not being a younger one? James, how are you? You can say, okay, all right, good, we're all right. Okay, we're going to say in a very, at the risk of sounding utilitarian, that marriage is for work. Now, we'll, we'll dress it up in a minute. We won't make it sound so tedious and burdensome. But there's something to be said for the fact that there is a dominant characteristic, especially in the Genesis narrative when marriage is instituted, when it's created, that would lead us to understand or lead us to believe that marriage, in terms of an overarching purpose is there for the fulfillment of work. So let's walk through some of these passages and see what we have. Number one, mankind is created with a role and a responsibility. Mankind is created with a role and a responsibility. So if you have your Bible open, look at Genesis 126 and 28, and then we're going to skip over to 2, 5, and 15. In 126, God has, in the flow of the storyline, God is just making, has uh, has finished making some of the um, uh, filling the land and some of the cattle and creeping things. Um, He comes in verse 26 and he says, "Um, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in 126, the first mention of humanity or mankind being created, God says that He's going to create them for what purpose? Ruling, reigning. Let us create man in our own image and let him rule. So, in terms of the divine design or the divine purpose at least, you would have to say <clears throat> that it's at least important and significant that in, the very <clears throat> me, that in the very first mention of humanity being brought into existence or being on God's mind, so to speak, That he sees the creation of humanity, what we will come to know as man and woman, as being for the purpose of ruling over his creation. Then, just a couple verses later in 128, God has made them. In verse 27, he creates man in his own image. Male and female, he creates them. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, in 128, what is the purpose or the charge that God has given to man and woman? All right, you rule, subdue the creation. Now, pause there for a second because it's also fair to say, okay, well, actually, he tells them more than just rule and subdue. At the very first, he says what? What? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply. Have babies, have kids. That said, we, we can't ignore that, and, and we'll come back to it, especially as we get into later weeks and everything, but it, it needs to be acknowledged that one of the reasons, at least implicit in the text, is that multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying, is because it was going to take more than just two people to exercise dominion over all of creation, right? In other words, when God creates, and let's just limit it to the sphere of the earth, the globe, when He creates. However he does it, or whatever shape it takes, as he begins to bring it into existence and separate dry land from water and sky and all all that kind of good stuff, and then when it describes what he does in terms of filling it with with plants or with uh, various animals on land, sky, and sea, it seems patently clear that he creates the sort of natural realm, nature and animals, within a ready-to-go fullness, right? He, he fills the sea. The sea is teeming with all kinds of swimming animals, and the sky has no shortage of birds, and the land has no shortage of, of animals. And then from there, He creates two people. You subdue the earth. By the way, even that is interesting language to use in light of a perfect creation. Why would you need to subdue it? You subdue it, have dominion, exercise rule and authority over it. But how can any two people do that? I think part of the flow of the story is that you see that one of the unique things that God does with people is that He creates or He begins that that creation process by giving them the ability to multiply so that as they continue to grow, they continue to grow into their role as those who have dominion and rule over the creation. So that the more they multiply, the more fruitful they are, the more effective they'll be in exercising dominion. Because they'll have people now who can take this plot of land or that plot of land. They'll begin to spread out and fill the earth so that every inch of the, the creation, so to speak, now has people who are able to care for it who are able to manage it, who are able to tend it. So, in the very first part of Genesis, when humanity is introduced into the, the creation narrative, we're told that God creates mankind to rule over what it is that He's made, that He charges man and woman with the responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion and exercising rule and we might say that that's one of the distinctive ways that Adam and Eve or mankind in general is an image bearer that in the same way that God is creative in bringing about life and then ruling over what it is that he brings into existence he gives a measure of that ability and responsibility to us as humans. We have the ability to create, literally, in the sense of creating life, right? The union of man and a woman and you know being fruitful and multiplying. But we can create in terms of things that we design or things that we implement as we you know experiment a little bit. Uh, we can exercise authority and dominion. That is part of what it means to be an image bearer, that we act like we imitate God in the ways that we bring about new life and in the way that we exercise rule and dominion over the earth. Genesis two, along these same lines of looking at the fact that man is created with a role and responsibility. In Genesis two, five, in chapter two, we're kind of backing up now. Genesis one sort of gives us a, a very broad, almost thematic overview of of how God creates and brings everything into existence. Chapter two, I think the best way to understand the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that Genesis 2 is now going back and it's kind of sort of zooming in and looking at some of the details as to how the events of chapter one took place. Does that make sense? Genesis 1, sort of a broad overview, this is what God did, and then in Genesis 2, he's kind of going back and saying, now let's look a little bit more closely at what this was like when God made man and woman, and so we get a little bit more detail rather than just sort of these very broad summary statements. So, that being said, in 2.5, we're told this, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. Why? Four. two reasons are given. Okay, one, the Lord had not sent rain yet, and two, there was no man to work the ground. There was no, no what does it say, shrub of the field yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for... God hadn't sent rain, and He hadn't put a man to tend to the plants. That clearly is a statement that one of the primary tasks that man has, or one of the primary reasons that man ha- or that God has for creating Adam to begin with, is to cultivate, to keep, to to tend to the creation. In fact. If we take seriously what uh, Genesis 2-5 says, it actually sounds like in some ways the flourishing of creation actually depends upon God creating man. In other words, it's not going to flourish the way that it will unless someone like Adam is created so that he can help it along. So until Adam comes, and by extension we would say Eve, until Adam and Eve come, man and woman. Creation is not going to meet its ultimate goal or is not going to be able to reach its ultimate design because it doesn't have a necessary component, namely us, to stimulate, to encourage, to keep it, to guard and direct it. And then skip down a little bit further in 2.15, this is as explicit a statement as you can find. If you're not convinced by what you see in 126 and 28 and 2.5, you have then in 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and watch over it, or NASB has to cultivate it and to keep it. If uh, I can't remember the title that we had for the series, but it, uh, we were basically looking at Um, how the storyline of Scripture goes full circle, starts off with uh, creation in Genesis and gets to the new creation in Revelation. And we said that one of the interesting features when when you're connecting the dots and seeing that all of this is part of one whole is that in this statement that's made, the charge that's given to Adam to cultivate and to keep the, you know, the garden or the land, that the, the verbiage there that's used, cultivating keep, is priestly language, that that's language that is used of the priests in going about their duties and responsibilities related to, say, the tabernacle or the temple, or in keeping up with the things that God had charged them with. So, in fact, what God is asking or what God is telling Adam to do is not... Okay, Adam, you've got this, you know, back-breaking mundane labor that you've got to do. That's why I created you. I'm not going to do all this work. Someone's got to do it. But the picture is of, of this sort of garden temple that God has made where man is going to move about freely in the garden in perfect fellowship and harmony with his Creator, and like a priest, he is going to serve his Creator by serving and ministering to what was created. In the same way, for example, that priests serve their Creator, serve their Lord by ministering to the people that He created, right? He creates, He gives birth to Israel, and one of the first things that He does through the Mosaic Law is that He institutes the Levitical priesthood. They serve the Lord by serving their fellow man in a, in a very more basic, fundamental way, humanity is put in the garden, mankind is put in the garden to cultivate and keep it, to act as laboring priests in this garden temple. So, all that being said, when you're talking about the fact that marriage is created for something, one of the things that you have to come back to is that when you look at the very beginning of creation, why is humanity created in the first place? And one of, the, one of the distinctive features in both chapters 1 and 2 is that God creates mankind, man and woman, creates them to have dominion, to cultivate and to keep what is created. He gives them a role and a responsibility that they have to fulfill, now, that leads us to our, to our second point, or our second observation. The man is given a helper. So, this is in uh, 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper... Suitable for him why at this point, why does Adam need a helper what What kind of a helper does he need? I guess is maybe more of the fundamental question. okay, one, we're back again if this earth is full of living creatures and has the potential to flourish and to thrive, but it depends on how good a job Adam is going to do in tending it, in keeping it, in cultivating it. It's going to be slow going if Adam is the only one doing it. He needs a helper. Also, we've already alluded to the fact that we, we know, sort of hindsight being twenty twenty, that when God says in chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, that He needs a helper for that. He needs Eve. But, here, but, the, but the thing that we're trying to stress is a lot of times when we come to this verse and when we read this, God said it's not good for Adam to be alone. We take that as meaning... It's not good for Adam to be in solitude. That's that's not the aloneness that, that the text is talking about. There's nothing in the text up to this point that would lead us to believe that's what the concern is. Now, again, not denying the fact that God has created Adam with the ability to enter into relationships. Obviously he can do that with his creator with God and Adam they can commune and have fellowship together he's going to be able to do that with his fellow man also but in the flow of the storyline especially in chapter 2 everything that we everything that is provided for us in the context of the chapter is about the fact that there needs to be someone to cultivate to work the land That Adam is placed in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And then God says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Another perhaps more basic and simpler way to, to look at this, if the issue was the fact that Adam just needed companionship, you don't have to use the language of a helper, right? It's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make a friend for him. I'll make a companion for him, I'll make a special friend, right? But nonetheless. But he doesn't use that, he uses the language of helper. And so one of the, one of the uh, I think one of the difficulties that we have, and one of the reasons that we, we so easily or so quickly shy away from this is because we're, we're embarrassed about what, what it might say if we attach this label of helper on the woman, right? Because Christians get a bad rap about, you know, male-dominated, patriarchal, you don't let women teach and you don't... But that's not the point to a verse like this either. Notice that in the context of Genesis 2, for Eve to be called Adam's helper does not say anything derogatory about Eve, it isn't in any way diminishing of who Eve is if there's any kind of negative reflection, if there were, I don't think there is, if there were any kind of negative reflection, it would reflect poorly on Adam. He's the one who needs the help, right? Adam can't do by himself what they, he has been charged to do, what humanity has been charged to do What does he need? He needs a helper. He can't do the job by himself, therefore he gets a woman. Furthermore, when you go through Scripture, this same term, the same Hebrew word that's used here for helper is used multiple times related to God Himself as Israel's helper. Do we ever read passages where God is described as our helper? and think, oh my gosh, I could never talk about God like that. That's that's so demeaning. No, we understand right at the start that for God to be our helper says something about us that we need help, that we're not self-sufficient. So, all this goes back to the simple point that when God says it's not good for Adam to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him, the most natural understanding, if we try to strip away some of the, you know, discomfort and some of the, um, the early biases that we have that have kind of been conditioned into us, is to understand that it's not good for Adam to be alone because he can't, he's not up to the task on his own. He needs someone to come alongside him and help him with the work. Now, that leads into another sort of question, well, if Adam needed help, God could have made another man. I mean, if Adam's going to do some heavy lifting, isn't he going to be able to lift more with another man than he is with a woman? And then you've got procreation issues. and But God could have created however he wanted to, right? Okay. I'm not going to answer that right now. So, here's a, a good sort of summary quote that Ash gives in his book where he says, marriage is instituted by the Creator in the context of meaningful work. Marriage is instituted by the Creator in the context of meaningful work. Now, let me pause right here and go ahead and make the jump and say, okay, all that sounds fine and good for Genesis in one sense, if you want to talk about it abstractly. But how does this kind of an understanding, marriage is created within the context of meaningful work, how does that relate to the here and now, or in what way is this sort of, how does it fit as a timeless perspective on marriage? And I think what we would say is that when you look at the totality of Scripture, you see that what humanity is given to do in the very beginning is still what we're about doing. In other words, God places, creates man and woman as His image bearers to be His, uh, his stewards or his, uh, his property managers, as it were. I own this, it's mine, but I'm letting you keep an eye on it, and I'm letting you develop it and cultivate it and see to it that it thrives. And the idea or the intent was that from that point on, everyone who entered into the human race, everyone who entered into the creation story would share in that task. They would be part of the means by which creation is brought under a rightful dominion so that it could thrive and flourish and so that we could find joy in meeting the assignments that our Creator had given us. That was going to be enjoyment and satisfaction for us. The difference though is that as a result of the fall in Genesis 3, and again, I think Ash hits on this well, that one of the things that changes is that now our work as humans has to be a rescue operation before it can be a governing operation. In other words, because sin has come in and wrecked the harmony and the peace that existed in creation, because sin has come in and has more or less made us rebels, in active rebellion and warfare against our Creator, we have to first be brought back into right relationship with our King before we can rightly exercise any kind of dominion or productive or fruitful labor in the creation that He's made. So, when man and woman come together, even today, husband and wife come together one of the distinctive purposes that they would be able to serve their king and their creator more effectively. But what about romance? What about love? What about race? Forget about, no, don't. Okay, so just thought experiment. If marriage... Is perhaps best viewed as, or maybe a helpful view of marriage, is one in which you see man and woman coming together for service. And again, don't lose sight of the the, the sort of priestly echo that we're serving our Creator as his image-bearing. Priests. Okay, if that's one of the defining characteristics of marriage, how does that affect how we think of love and friendship or love and companionship when it comes to marriage? How does how does that help us when it comes to prioritizing those things? One of, one of the dangers, and, and you see this all the time in in, uh, in our culture today, in our society today, is that Almost all the time that you hear someone talk about marriage, right? how often do you hear that discussed in terms of, I found the person who completes me. I found the person who fulfills me. I found my soulmate. It it becomes all about compatibility. What happens, though, when Mr. Soulmate begins to show himself not to be so compatible as you once thought he was when he was, you know, dressed up, showered and stuff like that every time you went out to eat. Now you're not going out to eat every time you get together. He's definitely not showering every time you get together. And now all of a sudden, well, I'm not really so sure that this is my soulmate. I'm not really sure that we're so compatible anymore. If the ultimate purpose of marriage is to find your soulmate, you've got serious foundation issues existing with your concept of marriage, right? Which is one of the reasons why when marriages dissolve and when people go off to find someone else, they're looking for someone better, quote unquote, and by that they mean someone who is more to my liking or more fitting, for lack of a better word. In those cases, what happens is, is that marriage inevitably, if you view it primarily or even exclusively, we'll say, let's say it that way, if you view marriage exclusively through the lens of love and friendship, the focus is either on me and what I'm wanting to get out of this other person, right? I want love from them, or I want a certain kind of friendship, or the focus is on them in terms of whether or not they're meeting the standard. You see the problem there? Marriage then becomes about me, or it becomes about her. And then somehow in there, I I know God's in there somewhere, but I'm not quite sure how He fits in, because marriage is all about companionship and romance and not being alone. But, If we begin to think a little bit more about the fact that marriage is given to us as a way for two people to come together and to accomplish more in their service to their Creator and King than what they could alone, then it tends to balance things out a little bit more. Hopefully then, the more that I grow in love for my wife, the more our relationship grows in friendship, the more effective we are in our service and worship of God. Because let's face it, if you're going to be attached at the hip to someone and you're going to have to go out and work together, aren't you going to accomplish far more working together in harmony than you are if you're at odds with each other? Sexual intimacy, or I think that was supposed to be sex, comma intimacy. Because women, I guess, say there are other forms of intimacy than just sex. Men, I don't know, that's what they claim. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. If you ever feel yourself burning with hatred and disgust in anything that I say in an offhanded way, just pray for my wife because she lives with it. Okay, so. sexual intimacy, or intimacy in general. We'll talk next week. One of the, one of the um, and this goes with sort of the, the whole love and fulfillment kind of thing. Don't you think it's a, it seems to be, if, if you take sort of a worldly view of what marriage is good for, right, and sadly this is even sort of the way that Christians can present it too, Okay, marriage is, is good because once you get married, you you can do anything with the sex stuff, right? You got the green light. Until you get married, no, can't do it. So, you get married so that you can have sex, and, and that's what marriage is good for. And then you look and you see in popular and pop culture and society and stuff like that, and they present a healthy, thriving marriage as one where the wife is breathlessly waiting for the husband to return from work, or the husband breathlessly waiting for the wife so that they can meet back at the house at the end of a long day, and then they fall into each other's arms and write all the fabio stuff that and soap opera stuff, but it's a very, very cruel joke that no one seems to live up to that once they get married if the if the end goal or if the purpose of marriage were, was to find sexual fulfillment and complete sexual satisfaction, why does no one ever seem to find it? No, no one ever seems to, seems to be having, you know, the kind of sexual relationship that they portray as being the goal in music and movies, right? Most of us who have been around for a little bit say, eh, That's not realistic. But we chuck one partner after another, thinking that if I'm not having that kind of sexual intimacy, then something must be wrong with the relationship. It must be that there's something better out there, and I just didn't find it yet. But if we take a different view of marriage and we say, no, marriage has not been created For the express purpose of sexual expression or satisfaction, although that is a part of marriage and it is a great part of marriage, we'll talk more about that next week, if we come back and say, no, but even in Genesis 1 and 2, even with the be fruitful and multiply, even with Adam laying eyes on Eve at the first, ah, this is it, right, that kind of, yeah, I like this kind of a thing, it still doesn't take away from what lies at the center which is the ruling, dominion, cultivating, keeping, serving aspect. So, what if the gift of sexual intimacy that's to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship is given for a break to make us more effective in the work that we do in serving the Lord? Similar to, for example, the way that the Sabbath worked with the work week. You work six days through the week, and at the end of the week, you have a Sabbath day. Why, why do you have a Sabbath day? To rest. Why, why do you need to rest? Okay, to recoup, because work is hard, life is hard. Does rest, Is rest only about just sitting back in the lazy boy, feet up? All right, there's also the, the idea of worship. God says you're going to work for six days. You're going to rest on the seventh so that you will know I am the God who sanctifies you. There's a way in which the Sabbath, the Sabbath day is meant to reorient God's people back to Him right? It's, it's easy to get lost in the busyness of the work week. You have the Sabbath day so that you can turn and say, okay, let's make sure we get the priorities in order. Yes, the work is important. God's given us that work to do, but ultimately, this is work for Him, and the Sabbath day lets me turn that way. It gives me rest. It gives me a chance to catch my breath. It rejuvenates me and it enables me to go for another, another six-day work week, right? Hang on just a second. Along with that, then, is it possible that one of the things that God has done in creating sexual intimacy for a husband and wife is that He gives that to them as a gift, yes, for their enjoyment, yes, so that they can uh, strengthen the bond, but so that they get a break from the hustle and bustle of life and the tedium that exists, and so that they can ease one another's burdens for a little bit before they go back out into the world and try to tackle another objective or wrestle with the kids again. Do you see? So that sex actually can be viewed as something of a Sabbath. It's a break from the work. Good work, work that needs to be done, but in the same way that God didn't create a full seven days of Sabbath, He didn't create marriage to be this unending erotic ecstasy that the world tries to promote and say, this is what marriage is all about, which really is just a a self-centered fleshly way of saying it's all about living for your pleasure. That's not what marriage is for. And the minute that I start to live as if marriage is for pleasure, and I get pleasure out of the right order. I begin to lose sight of God. I begin to lose sight of Christ and what it is that I've been placed here on this earth to do. And marriage is more about serving me rather than marriage serving my Lord. I think this is the last one procreation and children. You say, well, that's easy. Children are just work. So, of course, if marriage is for work, you've got to have kids because. What work are you going to have if you don't have kids? It's just going to be too easy. No, part of this goes back to the be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. Part of this also, though, has to be factored into the rescue operation that now has to take place in the creation. One of the distinctive perspectives that Christians should have on the issue of marriage as it relates to family, child-rearing, is that we view children not as a means to meet some hole in my soul that needs to be filled, right? You hear all these famous people talking about, oh, I just had to have a kid because I needed something bigger to live for. Oh, my gosh, what a horrible thing to say, right? That poor kid, all that pressure that's on them to satisfy this gaping hole in mom's heart or in dad's heart, never going to be able to live up to that. Not to mention the fact that even if you take a, uh, set aside the fact the pressure that, that puts on the kid to meet a need that he was never designed to meet, it also is a thinly veiled new form of idolatry. You're finding your satisfaction, your meaning, your fulfillment in life based on a child. So, life is good as long as little Johnny is doing well in school and as long as everyone loves him and he has plenty of friends, but when that kid starts to act out or when his grades start to slip, or when, you know, we're not really quite sure what in the world is going on with him because look at the way he dresses and look at his hair and all that kind of good stuff. Now, all of a sudden, your world starts to fall apart. Now, the one that was supposed to bring the satisfaction and meaning, all that's starting to fall by the wayside. Rather than seeing, even children, yes, as a gift, yes, as a means by which we do find joy and delight, but first and foremost, we see even the gift of children as being one more piece of the puzzle in which we serve and labor in creation. We, we bring about our kids, we want to raise them up and set them loose so that they can continue in the process of rescuing God's creation through witnessing, through evangelism, and then setting about bringing God's kingdom to reality here on earth. When viewed that way, all of these different perspectives that have their part in in our view of marriage is all ordered under the rule and reign of God and the supremacy of Christ. Rather than upending the order and making marriage about my felt needs or the holes that I have in my heart or making my children meant to minister to some need that I have, All of this, ultimately, is part of God's design by which He equips us to be effective ministers in His kingdom. And there is a way in which man and woman coming together and being joined in a marriage relationship is uniquely equipped to do that. By the way, this also, we don't have time to do it now, this is also one of the ways that you guard against... um, putting too much weight on marriage, such that if you're not married, oh my gosh, well, you'll just, you'll never be able to accomplish anything, because everybody's supposed to get married, except Paul didn't, oh, and Jesus didn't, and he turned out all right, and so on and so forth. Having the right perspective in terms of what the purpose of marriage is helps not just in terms of how we view our own marriages, but also in terms of how we view family, how we view things like singleness, and I think helps us even as we relate and interact with sort of the the day-to-day challenges and struggles of life. So, in closing then, challenge is simply to go out from here and begin thinking about, or at least more often begin thinking about the fact that one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, that God has brought you together with your spouse, husband or wife, is because He intends for the two of you together to accomplish things for Him, to be good, faithful servants in His kingdom and in His creation. And the question is, how do we do that together? How do the two of us coming together effectively enhance our abilities or lengthen the reach that we otherwise would not be able to have if either one of us were left to ourselves. Okay? Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that we've had. We ask that you would uh, help us continually to come back to your word and to view um, all of the important areas of our lives, things like marriage, of course, uh, through the grid of Scripture, and that in doing so, we would um, not necessarily look to try to reinvent the wheel every time we come back to it, but at least try to come and with fresh eyes try to, um, to read well and to listen well. To what it is that Scripture says, it's so hard to bring uh, preconceived ideas and and baggage with us um, when we come to talks like this because we've, um, we've sort of heard all this stuff before and we just assume a certain way that it's to go. Um, I pray for those of us who are here tonight or uh, who are listening who are married, that you would enable us to see um, that our spouse is not there uh, primarily to be the one who meets our needs or who gives us a purpose in life. Ultimately, all of that is rooted in you and in the person of your son. Uh, Help us to see ourselves and our marriages as the means by which we more effectively bring about your rule and your dominion to your creation through the expansion of your kingdom, um, which is brought about in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.